0: having spent a great deal of time in in asian countries, especially india nepal and and myanmar uh, i've acclimated to many of their cultural norms including uh, outdoor bathing and outdoor bathroom functions uh yeah we're gonna talk about everything today i'm sorry uh not only have I encountered thousands of people bathing outdoors? I have bathed outdoors myself. There's a famous saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Uh, I'm not saying or suggesting that I want to abandon Western cultural practices. I certainly do not. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I have discovered that some of the simple things in life are the greatest Pleasures and we overlook them every day. One of the most overlooked pleasures in life is a long hot shower. Especially after a couple of weeks in the jungle, uh, I, I go to the first hotel I can find and turn the hot water to full blast and see how much the hotel actually has. Let's see if you can exhaust the supply. You know what I'm saying? Uh, one of the things that has endeared these people that I show you every week, one of the things that's endeared them to the Cornerstone family is that when we go to minister to them and work with them and disciple them, uh, the thing that endears us together is our willingness to eat their food, our willingness to eat with our fingers, our willingness to wear some of their clothes while we're there. Our willingness to participate in their dances, uh, they love embarrassing me and you if you come. Uh, you know, you, they know that we don't have rhythm like they've got and they'll love to laugh at you. But we dance and we sing their songs and we sleep where they sleep. Uh, if that means a straw mat on the floor and that's the where we're at, then that's that's what we do. And it also means to perform our personal hygiene functions the way that they perform theirs. When you're out in the middle of nowhere, you just, as I said, you do as everyone uh, culturally does. With that said, it does take some <laughs> adjustment. Uh, it does uh, take uh, you to be willing to learn how to adapt to their cultural protocols. They will not shake touch you with certain hands I mean they will not drink out of certain glasses I mean there's a whole cultural protocol to follow and one of the cultural protocols that I have learned I don't know if there's a real name for it but this is what I call it I call it seeing without looking what I mean by this phrase is when you see something that is private in nature You just move on as if you didn't see it. You move on without looking intently at it. When you see something that's private in nature happening out in the public, and you happen to see it, you don't look. And you just, you know, even though it's happening in public, you avert your eyes and just go on about your business as if you didn't see anything. Now, that is a cultural practice of the East that you'll need to adopt if you're going to go spend any time over there. Uh, Even in the capital city of New Delhi, if we take you over there to minister, you cannot survive one 24-hour period in the capital city of New Delhi without seeing naked men and women walking down the street. I don't know if they're out of their mind crazy or if they're just publicly, who knows? Who knows? But you'll see stuff, and you say, what do I do with this? Nothing. You just see without looking, and you move on, and, and mind your business. Um, I could cite a million examples that I've experienced, but I'll give you one, and it'll tell you the whole story. Uh, I was in the middle of nowhere between on the border of China and India preaching to maybe about 300 people one night. The power went out. We had no, I preached with a flashlight on my Bible like this. Uh, there's not a light in the room. We're in the middle of the jungle. There's not a street lamp in the city. I mean, dark, dark o'clock. Okay. And, uh, Rick Vogler was with me. We have flashlights. And, uh, as if you travel with us, you know, the protocol, you got a headlamp, you got a flashlight, you got the, you know, your go bag with you. And so we finished the meeting. It's time for dinner. They're going to do some games. Rick and I leave the building. We turn and there's a big open field to walk across to where we're staying. And as our flashlights turn across the open field after a two-hour worship service, there are hundreds of people using the cover of darkness to relieve themselves. I mean, just an ocean of people evacuating uh, their system in an open field, using the cover of darkness for privacy. And here, two Americans have illuminated them fully with, with flashlights. You know, you say, what do you do? You turn your flashlight in a different direction and you take another path. You saw, you don't need to look. And so you just see without looking and you avert your gaze and you move on and you just say, well, there's that, okay? Now, what I've just described... Is absolutely essential for you reading your Old Testament. The Old Testament is set in the East, not the West. And you need to understand the cultural practices of the East in order to interpret what's happening. It's a big challenge to read the Old Testament with Western eyes like ours and fully understand what's happening in some of the passages. As a matter of fact, you're going to read passages, you're going to say, I, I'm wondering what exactly is happening in in this passage what's really going on here Um, as I set up the story of Bathsheba one of the things that's fascinated me in the last week uh, is the story of Bathsheba has absolutely blown Twitter up Uh, if, if you're on Twitter you understand what I'm saying I have no idea maybe you can enlighten me after the service as to why this has become one of the most trending things on Twitter but Bathsheba blew Twitter up this week, and the whole world is debating what we're about to talk about, uh, what exactly happened in the story of Bathsheba. Now, with the background that I've given you, if you understand that it is the responsibility of the seer not to look, it'll totally change your understanding of a biblical story like the story of Bathsheba before us today. Bathsheba was in the most private place she had to bathe. There is nothing in the text that suggests otherwise. It was David's responsibility to see without looking. He knows the culture. He's the king of the people. He knows what's what. It was David's power to see without looking he had the power to oh yeah there's that I need to look the other way and move on about my business it it was David's duty to see and not look further you have to ask yourself as we read the story of Bathsheba does this story I mean it's in the Bible for some reason right does the story of Bathsheba affect how we live out our Christian faith today why did God preserve this story in, in the Bible As a matter of fact, she's in Matthew again as one of the ancestors in the genealogy of Jesus. Her story has something to do with your Savior. In other words, (laughs) she's the path through which Jesus came in to this earth as a man. She's part of the redemptive story. So her story has pertinence on our lives in some way. And I believe that the true understanding of her story... It's never been more relevant than right now. Uh, I'm fairly plugged into what happens in pl- religious politics uh, and, and, and in re- religious groups. And I just want to say that I think the story of Bathsheba has consequential implications for us today. It's a timely story for us, especially in our world filled with abuse and steeped with ongoing accounts of sexual misconduct by powerful people. Uh, you, if you're a Cornerstone member, you'll know. If you're a guest, you won't. But I grew up in a tradition extremely conservative. Many of you in the room come from a similar tradition as I did. Very, very conservative tradition. And in conservative religious traditions, many of the victims of rape and sexual assault ultimately receive an equal part of the blame. She was assaulted. Yeah, do you see how she dresses? That right there. Yeah, but you know her, right? You know how she acts. She probably deserved to get raped. That kind of language right there. And so, uh, if you come from an ultra-conservative background, you know what I'm talking about. That the victim of the crime sometimes gets blamed for the crime, uh, when all the blame should go to the perpetrator. Uh, It happens a lot in uh, uh, religious circles as well that when there's a sexual misconduct involving a powerful religious figure, when the spiritual leader is clearly fully at fault, somehow part of the blame gets diverted uh, to the one who is the victim. Now, I want to be very clear at this point with my language. This is is an ongoing injustice this is not right this is part of what's broken and needs to be fixed and it's still being perpetrated in our own culture at this present hour the very way we tell the story of David and Bathsheba matters as a matter of fact again the tradition I grew up in if you were going to hear about the story of David and Bathsheba it would be portrayed to you as Today we're going to cover the, the issue of David's affair with Bathsheba. That's the language that would have been used in the church. David didn't have an affair with Bathsheba. David raped Bathsheba. And the very way you frame the language affects how we interpret the story. The church has to be very careful Because the very way they tell the story can disparage Bathsheba, who is the victim in the story. Instead, what the church has traditionally done is they've said, well, yeah, sure David did wrong, but... And then they pass an equal share of the blame over to Bathsheba for being beautiful. Let me see if I can explain it in in a different way. A disparaging view of Bathsheba would tell the story like this. Well, she was bathing on a rooftop, for Pete's sake. The contextual view from the Bible explains to you that everyone was bathing on their rooftop. Everyone bathed in an enclosed courtyard, which is the most private place they have to bathe in an Eastern culture. You say, well, why isn't she bathing indoors? No one has indoor plumbing. It's 10 million B.C. What are you talking about? In India today, there's a billion people. Most of them don't have indoor plumbing today. If you've been there to see the culture, it totally changes your understanding of Scripture. The disparaging view, if you, I mean, if you want to slander Bathsheba, the, the disparaging view is, well, she's bathing naked outdoors. Well, while... While that is true in Western culture, that you bathe naked, now I'm making a big assumption here, <laughs> but I'm assuming you shower and bathe, you know, all naturel, okay? It's a big assumption, but that's the way I was taught in Western culture. We do it in the privacy of our home. And while that's true of you, it's not true in Eastern cultures. Can you put that picture back up for me? They're bathing. With their clothes on. I've bathed with them. With my clothes on. You say, why? Because everybody's watching. That's why. Because we're there. And that's the water source. And if you want to wash your hair, you have to wash it right there. And you learn how to bathe. I mean, Raj right there has got his underwear on. But everybody else has pretty much their clothes on. And that's what bathing can look like in an Eastern culture. What would totally freak you out is upstream, about 10 feet, someone's urinating. And about upstream, another 20 feet, they're pushing the ashes of dead, burnt bodies into the river. Anyway, that would totally freak you out. But that's bathing in an Eastern culture, okay? The disparaging view would say, well, Bathsheba's immodesty caused David to stumble. Let me tell you what the text says in the Bible. That David has voyeuristic habits from his elevated palace balcony, that he needs to get under control. That's what the text says. The disparaging view would say, well, Bathsheba came willingly to the palace with the intent of seducing the king. Let me tell you what the text says. The text says he dispatched the secret service to go and take her. And they took her from her home to the palace and put her in his bedroom and locked the door. Now you tell me what that looks like. She was taken. He sent men to fetch her. The disparaging view of the story of Bathsheba would say, well, Bathsheba had an affair with David. That's a very sugar-coated way to (laughs) cover up a rape right there. The, The text suggests that David forced her against her will. Now, all I'm saying to you this morning is understanding culture matters how you read a story. And how you read the story of David and Bathsheba matters to how you take a, a scriptural view of the topic before us this morning. When we say David had an affair with Bathsheba, we are overlooking the fact that Bathsheba is a victim of a sovereign king's sexual aggression. It matters how we tell the story because the church of Jesus Christ cannot make light of the plight of modern-day Bathshebas who are right here in our own church community and in our extended city community. You cannot make light of their situation. And so, if nothing else this morning, I want to challenge the believers hearing this message to eradicate the line of thinking in which the victim shares partial blame for the sexual assault. Let's quickly deal with the definition of rape. This is not my definition. According to the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, abbreviation RAIN, there are three keys to determining if if a sexual act is consensual. Here are the three questions that they ask. Are the participants old enough to consent? Everybody with me? Do both people have the capacity to consent? Did both participants agree to take part? According to Rain, I quote, If any of these questions cannot be answered in the affirmative, then rape has occurred whether or not violence and physical force were used. It's further important this morning that you understand the language of the Bible. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It's translated then to you through sometimes Latin and Greek and other ways, but into English. And when you try to take the Hebrew language into English, there are not not word-for-word equivalents. The Hebrew language has no word for rape. So, you're trying to take what's being described in Hebrew and bring it over to English. It's not as easy as you would think. Do you have a verse for... Here is Judges 20. Uh, This is describing a rape scene. Uh, uh, They beset the house roundabout. They thought to slay me and my... They have forced my concubine. She is dead. They raped my concubine. They raped my... NIV, God's Word. ESV, they violated. CSB, they raped. Go ahead, Forward. Deuteronomy twenty two, if a man finds damsel virgin not betrothed, and lay a hold on her and lie with her. Rapes her rapes her seizes her seizes and lies with her. Rapes her, they are discovered. What's your next verse? Second Samuel thirteen. Nay, my brother, do not force me, do not force me, do not rape me, do not violate me, do not disgrace me. So as you're reading through different Bible versions, you're going to see force, rape, uh, you know, uh, dishonor. You're going to see many different words. And you say, why don't they all use the word rape? NIV uses the word rape. But why don't the other versions? Because there is no word for rape in Hebrew. And they're trying to describe what the Hebrew is actually saying. It's saying for someone. Well, in English, you have a word for that. When you force someone to have a sexual act, that's called rape in English. We do have a word for it, and they have a different word, but you'll understand why the varying terms when you're reading from different versions of the Bible. Let's get to the setting of our story very quickly. David is now the king of Israel. David has been on friendly terms with the king of the Ammonites. The Ammonites lived to the east on the other side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. I'm reading from Second Samuel. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. David is friendly with the old king of the Ammonites. But the old king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hunan succeeded him. And David thought, well, I'll show kindness to Hunan, the son of Nahash, just as his father was kind to me. So when the king died, David sent a delegation, this is uh, the end of verse 2, to express his sympathy to the new king at the loss of his father. Verse 3. The Ammonite commanders said to the new king, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent these men to explore the city and to spy it? and to overthrow it the new king's advisor says david's trying to trick you this envoy is not to you know bring flowers to the funeral this this envoy from israel has come to spy out the land so they can overthrow you so hunan verse 4 seized david's envoys shaved off half their beards and cut their garments off at the buttocks and sent them away now there's something you didn't think you'd hear this morning in church so, the the envoy is seized, and we've got some handsome beards in the room, and you guys... Taylor, how long did it take to grow that thing? Years? So years? Don't yeah. Don't want to try it out. You don't want us to shave half of it off this morning? Yeah, and that's what they did. So, they shaved half of the beard, and they took a, a, a knife, and they <laughs> gave them all a miniskirt, and let everything just be almost exposed you say what in the world's happening they are insulting david's delegation and what they're doing when you mess with a guy in this way what's happening culturally is tantamount to a declaration of war in other words the ammonites are saying we're not falling for your trap send these guys home in shame that's what we'll do to anybody you send across the jordan river you know up yours man and they're declaring war on israel that's what's happening Okay, so joab now there's some bad dudes in david's kingdom abner joab There's some warriors called the mighty men over here and they are They are like navy seals man. They are they are a force to be reckoned with And like one of these guys will go take on a thousand men. That's the kind of guys. They are just incredible warriors joab is one of them joab is the general of the army of israel at this moment He uh, leads the army of Israel out to battle against the Ammonites. This is the first battle. And just whips the fire out of them. I mean, Israel just stomps the putty out of them. Okay? And so, let me read you the story. The Ammonites didn't give up. So they gathered together for some more battles. I'm reading now 2 Samuel 10, 17. When David was told of this, he gathered Israel, they crossed the Jordan, and they went to Helam. And the Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. I mean, we can't even fathom battles like this, just of epic proportion. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there and so what happens is a series of battles between the ammonites and israel (coughs) and david and joab just smash them i mean just crush them and then when chapter 11 opens the next chapter david is preparing to finish off the ammonites they've defeated them now multiple times and now david's like let's regroup let's heal and on the one-year anniversary, be like 9-11 to you, the day they attacked us and shaved off our men's beards and declared war, on the one-year anniversary, we'll go back and finalize this thing and eradicate them from the face of the earth. Now that's the setting. Now we're introduced to the characters. David, I think most of you would have some knowledge of who King David is. He's the unlikely teenage deliverer of the nation of Israel. When Goliath came out, the champion of the Philistines, uh, David, as a lad, was bringing lunch to the soldiers at the front lines, and when the men were scared to go out and fight Goliath, David took his sling and went out and killed the Philistine champion. You know that probably that story. And uh, the kingdom, Saul is the first king of Israel, he's the king in that period, and Saul because of the incident I read to you when we studied the book of Ans, Esther, because Saul did not eradicate the Ammonites in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel came to Saul and said, The kingdom's taken from you. So Saul is on a ticking clock. He is coming out of leadership. And David, as a youth, was ordained by the prophet Samuel to be the second king of Israel. God's choice of a king. Now David's a warrior. David is brave. David is courageous. But David's endearing quality was that he had a heart for God. He loves God. He wrote the a big group of psalms in your Bible. Uh, he's Israel's greatest king as you look back historically. He amassed all the wealth and everything to build the, t- the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, he, he was a man who, who was loyal to his friends. And he honored his uh, contracts and his covenants. And and, and he was a deliverer, but the story this morning marks the moment in David's life when he sins against God and begins to lose favor with God. Now, I've wrestled for some weeks with the language I wanted to use today to describe David. Because as with many of the biblical stories, you're you're left asking yourself, is Samson a good guy or a bad guy? (laughs) You know, is Gideon a good guy or a bad guy? Sometimes there's a line there and you're not sure where you fall after you've read the whole story of whether this is somebody you want to be proud of or someone that you're ashamed of. And when you're looking at David and you realize, you know, here's a great king, a great man, a great spiritual leader, but wow, did he ran off the rails right here and does some horrific things. I mean, not just sins, Crimes. Some horrific things are done. And so it's hard to find the exact language I want to use. And the best way I know to describe it, may surprise you again, is I, I. the last few weeks I was flipping through Netflix trying to find something to watch, and I saw a preview for a Netflix animated movie called The Beast. The Sea Beast. The Sea Beast? Has anybody seen The Sea Beast? Okay, The Sea Beast. And I think it's an anti-hunting, don't kill the animal story. I haven't seen it yet, but I'll, I'll catch up with you. Hold on. So there's an animated story out there called The Sea Beast. Well, what caught my attention was the heroine of the story is a little girl named Maisie. And Maisie says to the protagonist, the other male lead hero at some point, these words. She says, sir, you can be a hero and still be wrong. I haven't been able to get that out of my mind. For weeks now. You can be a hero and still be wrong. You know what? I think that's really the language the Old Testament's trying to tell you. Samson was a hero. Yeah, and you can still be wrong. Gideon's a hero. Yep, he did a bunch of things that were wrong. Jephthah, he's a hero of Israel. You know what? He was wrong in how he dealt with his daughter. And how he shot his mouth off and made covenants he shouldn't have made. You say, Moses lost his temper. Yeah, you can be a hero and and still be wrong. In chapter 11, verse 3, you're introduced to another character named Uriah the Hittite. He is not a Jew. He is a descendant of the ancient Jebusite people that assimilated and stayed in Jerusalem and identified with God's people. Now, from a meta version, from a macro picture, the Bible is telling again this fascinating story that I've been trying to show you, Uriah is an outsider, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Tamar. He's an outsider. He is not a Jew. He is outsider to the covenant of, of God and God's people. Yet, Uriah has chosen to live in Jerusalem, be a part of David's administration, He's chosen God's people. He's chosen to identify with Israel's God and Israel's covenant, uh, God's covenant people. The Old Testament seems to keep telling this story. In the middle of here's the story of the Jews, these biblical authors, led by the Holy Spirit, keep sowing seeds into the story that are saying to us, but see, here is someone who's not a Jew. Look, they have a role in the story, and in their role, they display more godliness than God's covenant people do. That's the story that keeps cycling. So we're supposed to be asking, asking ourselves, because the way this is written, who will this, will this man, what type of man will Uriah prove to be as we read this story? The author intentionally is setting you up to ask that question. The author is intentionally challenging you to contrast Uriah to King David. We're next introduced in chapter 11 to Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She is a Jewess. She is part of God's covenant people. And the Bible's very clear to tell you she is a beautiful woman. Whenever the Bible brings in personal descriptive details, they are always relevant to the story. On a scale of 1 to 10, she is a 10. Bathsheba's father is Eliam. Eliam happens to be one of David's mighty men. She is a part of a connected family in the hierarchy of Israel. Her father is one of the elite warriors. Her grandfather is Ahithophel. That is one of David's top advisors in the cabinet. So her grandfather serves King David as an advisor. Her father is one of the mighty men out on the battlefield. Her husband is one of the... He's not a Jew, but he's identified with God's people, married into God's people, become one of God's people by choice. And now her husband Uriah is one of those mighty men out on the battlefield fighting for the freedom of Israel. Now, there's the characters, okay? Now, the story explains David's downfall and how he fell into God's displeasure because of his sin. Let's deal with the rape of Bathsheba. It happens in one verse in four very terse statements. Second Samuel 11.1 one, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabba, but David remained in Jerusalem. So now the story picks up that war setting and says this is the final battle in the war. sends sending the guys out to the battlefield to go finally uh, crush the Ammonites and, and deal with this thing on the one-year anniversary. But here's the statement that remains, but David didn't go with them. David remained in Jerusalem. Now here's what we know about David. David was a warrior king. And most of the stories of David put David out on the battlefield. He's not in the city. He's out in the field somewhere. He's outdoors in, in, a, in a rural setting, running, hiding, fighting, singing, shepherding. This is who, who David is. And out on the battlefield, well, that, this is where David shines. His courage and his bravery and his leadership, they just... I mean, he is a warrior king and when he goes out to battle, this is the guy you want leading you out to battle because if this guy's leading you out to battle, we're going to come home alive victorious today. It's that kind of story. His men are on the battlefield, but he's not out there with them now. He's comfortably back at home in the palace. I'm reading verse 2. Here it comes. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So, I want to know about this woman. Servant finds out. Servant brings back word. Servant says to David, I'm not only going to identify the woman, but I'm going to reveal her identity in a way to you, king, that gives you a subtle warning to back off. She is the wife. She is Bathsheba the wife of one of your most trusted people. She's the granddaughter of one of your most trusted... She is the daughter of one of your mighty men. Her husband is out on the front lines right now. You know what the servant's saying to King David? Hands off. Off limits. Not yours. You've seen, don't look. Out of bounds. Now David proceeds to cross the line... This is where it happens. Between admiring beauty and taking her by force. Now, I want to just give a subtle thing right here because I grew up in a very conservative tradition that tried to make the women as ugly as possible. As plain, as unappealing, as unattractive as you could make a woman. That's the way we wanted to make them because that was godly somehow. I still don't understand that. The problem is the men can't control themselves and it's a man problem, not a woman problem. If you're beautiful, well, praise God. You're the 1% that we all wish we were. You know, if you're handsome, you know, praise God. Enjoy it. It's a gift from God. We all wish we were you, you know. And, uh, uh, but we are all who we are and we're made by God the way we are. And, you know, uh, there, there it is. Uh, be who you are. Don't try to make yourself especially unappealing. Uh, do your best to present yourself well. It's one of the two or three ways people judge who you are is by how you present yourself and how you speak and how you act. So in those three areas of your life, I feel like you should always try to present yourself as best you can, speak as, you know, uh, properly as you can and, you know, and act as properly as you can and people will judge you to be a person of, of beauty and character and grace and, and all of these things, it's not a problem to look at a man and say, man, well, that's a handsome guy. It, it's not a problem to, to see a beautiful woman and say, wow, she's gorgeous. Okay, but now we need to move on. Okay? You cross the line when you say, wow, she's beautiful. I think I'd like to push my wife off of a cliff, kill her husband and take her. Okay, well, you've crossed like 10 lines right there. Okay? And we need to be very clear on that. There's nothing wrong with observing beauty. There's something wrong with killing people to to take it. That's the crime that's being perpetrated right here. Here it comes. Here we go. Verse 4 is where it all happens. Four terse statements. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Four terse statements. The author doesn't want to spend much time on this, clearly. He has said it. It's over. Let's move forward. Uh, the Bible is a very interesting book. It deals with things in a way that just I never cease to be amazed at. And it talks about things that I think should be left alone. And then it leaves alone things that I want to know about. Now You know, like somebody asked me last week, where are all the dinosaurs? I don't know. Why didn't God put that in the Bible? We want to know about that. Instead, we're given a statement about Bathsheba's monthly cycle here. You see that in the text? You talk about the Bible just putting all kinds of stuff out there. But there's a reason it's here. So let me just deal with it in in just a sentence here. Men take her. I'm going to assume they're the king's bodyguards from the palace that are sent. She just lives right out there. He can see her. Sent out there to get her and they bring her back into the palace. He sleeps with her. The Bible reveals that she's at an optimum place in her cycle to conceive. She's seven to ten days past her cycle. She's been purifying herself and and washing, and she's on the other side. She's at an optimum place for fertility. You understand why that's going to be important to the story here in just a second, obviously. And then she goes back to her home. He doesn't keep her in the palace. So he sent her back home, and clearly there's about to be a cover-up. Because he hasn't kept her. Now, what you want to ask yourself at this moment in the story is, did she have the power to resist? That's the question you have to ask yourself. The author has just put it out there. It's a different culture. It's a different time. He's a king, a man of power, a woman who's a subject. Was she, did she have the power to resist the king? I have a very clear opinion on this that I would be glad to debate with you in private, but now this is my moment, so I get to give my opinion. She absolutely did not have the power to resist a king, sovereign ruler of a nation, and that makes a difference. That makes this something else it's not like Bathsheba and David went out for coffee. They saw a movie. She showed a little bit of her calf. You know what I'm saying? They had a few innocent touches that escalated. Uh, he sent her flowers. She sent him a love. That's not what happened here. Secret Service shows up, bangs on the door, says, come with us. You're taken to the king's bedroom. The door is locked. There you are. You say, can you resist? I don't know. Can you? Uh, I read you the story about Xerxes. You you probably would die trying, Uh, but here we are. You know, here we are. I don't think she had the power to resist. That makes this something else on the other side of the line called a rape. Second Samuel eleven five. The woman conceived. That's why the cycle is important sentence in the story. The woman conceived and sent now a note to David. I am pregnant. You need to know, King, that your actions have some serious repercussions now, which leads us well let me say this when confronted with the consequences of our sin, repentance is the key to forgiveness and moving forward. Cover up is not the answer. For repentance and forgiveness is the key to having a happy, healthy future life where you can be everything you need to be. Cover-up is not going to get us anywhere, but now we deal with the cover-up. 2 Samuel eleven six. 6. So David sent word to Joab. Joab's the general out in the field. Send Uriah home. Send him home under pretense of sending him as a messenger to give me a status report on the war. So David's got a plan. He's going to get Uriah back home. He's going to get Uriah down to his house, make love to his wife. Nobody will ever know whose kid it is. Are you understanding the plot now? So a dispatch goes to the battlefield. Joab sent Uriah home and Joab sent him to David. Verse seven. And when Uriah came to David, David said, give me a report. How is Joab? How is the battle? Tell me how things are going. Right here's where you want to, you want to punch him. You know what I'm saying? He's scheming, he's conspiring, and this is a loyal, faithful man he's betraying. How's the battle going? Verse 8, then David said after the report, Uriah, tell you what, you're in Jerusalem, I know your wife is here, go on down to your house, wash up. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah didn't go home. Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of the servants. Uriah curled up on a shawl on the porch of the palace. Uriah didn't go down to his house and make love to his wife. rot So, verse 10. So David was told Uriah did not go home. So David asked Uriah, Haven't you come from the military campaign? Dude, you've been out in the field for for weeks. I, I sent you down to wash and go home and greet your wife. Why didn't you go home? Verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark, the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents right now. And my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? while the whole Israel is out in the field fighting a war. As surely as you live, King, I will not do such a thing. Well, now here's a man of honor. Now do you understand how the biblical writer has said to you, here is a Gentile outside of God's people who has chosen to identify with God's people, and the non-Jew is more righteous than the Jew. It's the recurring theme of Ruth, Tamar, you yeah, just keep cycling back to this again. You say, well, I'm, I'm one of God's people. Listen, sometimes people outside of this covenant room act more righteous than we do. And that's the truth of the story the Bible's trying to say to you. Listen, sometimes these people are the heroes, and God's people are the ones that are not doing right, and you've got a perfect story right before you right now. So, uh, David said, verse 12, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back to the battle. Let's have dinner tonight, and then then you can go back to the battlefield tomorrow. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and at David's invitation he ate and drank with the king. Watch this. And David made him drunk. You say, why? Going to send him home to sleep with his wife. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on a mat, among his master's servants, he did not go home. Don't you know David is really frustrated with this good man? The David's really frustrated because this man is doing right. And he is being righteous. And David is being unethical. And he can't get this man to conspire along with him. In my notes, I put this sentence. Even in a highly intoxicated state... <laughs> Uriah has more character right now than King David is showing. In the morning, verse 14, David said, okay, there's only one other way to deal with this guy. What do you think David's going to do? He's going to have to kill him. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to General Joab, and he sealed it with the king's seal, and Uriah is carrying his own death warrant and doesn't know it. Well, that's low, isn't it? David wrote a letter to Joab. Here's what it says. Put Uriah on the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw your men from him so he will be struck down. You know, it just so happens that we're at war. So not only can I murder him, but I can murder him in a way that it doesn't look like murder. Oh, you're low. You are, you are a bad man. You understand why I have trouble with David right now. You say, who is he? The hero of Israel, the apple of God's eye, the great psalmist. You know what Maisie said? Even heroes are wrong sometimes. And here's a perfect example. And so the letter is going out to the battlefield and Uriah goes out to the battle and in verse 17, it basically says, Uriah was murdered. He was killed on the battlefield. Now, David has... Taken what's not his. He has forced her. He's impregnated her. He's murdered her husband now. This is where we are in the story. Now I'm in verse 26. When Uriah's wife Bathsheba heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. I bet she did. At the time, after the time of mourning was over. Now this is where the story's going to take a twist on you. When the time of mourning was over, David had her brought back to the palace And she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Here's the footnote the author wants to emphasize. But this thing David had done displeased the Lord. What's remarkably missing from this story is any perspective from the victim. Have you noticed that? Stories told from David's, uh, you know, the prophet Samuel, David's top point of view, from a leadership point of the nation. We've not had any perspective from the victim at this point. She's been forcibly taken, impregnated. Her husband's been murdered. She's been taken back to the man who sexually assaulted her. And now she's been married to that man. And now she's bearing that man a child. You said, This is crazy. Well, it's not historically uncommon. As a matter of fact, this practice, this behavior of marrying your rapist, is codified in the Old Testament. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't write it. You'll have to take it up with God. But there was a a period of time in the Old Testament where if you were raped, one of the resolutions was for you to marry your rapist. I can't imagine a worse thing, but this is codified in the Old Testament. I'll read it to you and you'll be thankful you don't live in these ancient days. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her and he may never divorce her as long as he lives. And you say, well, good for the girl. I don't know if that's good for the girl or not. You know, the family gets a payoff and the girl has to marry her rapist. And I don't think any of us in this modern age are more grateful that we don't live under the old covenant that we live under the new covenant of grace and these rules are no longer in force upon our cultural context. You should find this abhorrent and you sometimes look at me crazy when I say the Old Testament uh, is not to be, you know, repeated. There are behaviors in the Old Testament that are abhorrent and you should not repeat them. This is one of them. You can rest assured that if a young woman in this church comes and seeks pastoral counsel and says, I was raped, I will not be advising her to marry her rapist. I will be advising her to file a police report. Let's call your parents. Let's all get together and go get the legal process started. Let's, let's find a way forward. Let's give, you know, let's, that's what we'll be doing. Okay? And, uh, I know this is here, but it's no longer, uh, for you. You're under a new covenant and you have a totally different culture and we are all thankful this morning that we are. So there's a cover up. Now watch this. The cover up is now uncovered, as it always gets uncovered. Now the curtain is pulled back and David's sins are about to be exposed. God is furious. That's what you need to know. And listen, if you're God's child, you can expect your heavenly father to take you to the woodshed over some things if you don't get them right. God is furious with David. David is his chosen servant. he's ticked that the one who's supposed to be reflecting the image of God is not reflecting the image of God. So God rattles the the cage of Nathan the prophet, and God says, Nathan, you go down and confront the king over his sin. That's not a job any of you would want, by the way. Can you imagine going into King Xerxes' palace and saying, you know, what are you doing with this harem? Yeah, John the Baptist tried that. You know what it got him? Exactly. Exactly. So Nathan the prophet, now about to go down to the throne room and confront King David over his sin. He does so by telling a story. You'll know it's rape when you hear the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said there were two men. David, King David, I want to tell you a story. God, sent me down here to tell you a story. David says, tell me the story. Nathan is very respected by David, and David names his son Nathan, by the way. He says, preacher, speak on. Here's the story, King. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. Small town, rich man, poor man. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. One guy's got a big spread, okay? Very rich. The poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb. For you city slickers, a ewe is a female sheep. This guy is poor and all he has is this one precious little female sheep. He raised it. Listen to the language. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. The little lamb even slept in his arms. And right now I'm flashing to Shauna Posey with her dog that she thinks is a human. Uh And I'm flashing to Becky Wortley, whose dog might or might not sometimes drink out of her cup, you know. And I'm flashing to some of you who think your pets are completely human. This is the story that's being told. This poor guy... All he has is this one little lamb, and it sleeps in the bed, cuddled up, fluffy, next to him, and it nibbles out of his scraps, and it drinks out of his cup, and it's so precious. It grew up with his kids. It's like, you know, another part of the family. Verse 4, Now a traveler came to the rich man. Oh, out-of-town guests arrive. And the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, the rich man took the ewe lamb from the poor man and killed it and served it up to his guests. The rich man took the defenseless. He had no regard for others. He took what was not his to take. Nathan's story clearly defines the lamb as completely innocent and all guilt and blame is being put on the one who took the lamb. Verse number 5, David's face grows red. He burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, I don't know who did this in my kingdom, but whoever took that man's little precious lamb, as surely as the Lord lives, this man must die! Exclamation point. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did what thing and he didn't have any pity and I can't believe someone in my kingdom would be so low to do this. In the pivotal moment, Nathan looked at King David and said, You are the man. Now, the story's designed in such a way that your intention this morning, and when I say to you that the prophet said, David, you are the guilty man. The story's designed in such a way that you're supposed to feel a little dagger too, because you are the man. And you are the woman too. You're supposed to feel just a little bit of that this morning. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you. I gave your master's wives into your arms. There's a practice in Israel and all ancient kingdoms that when one kingdom dies, the harem goes to the next king That's what's being talked about in all of these passages. I gave you all of Israel and Judah, and if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in His eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Oh yeah, it's known. God knows what you did. You struck Uriah the Hittite down with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of God's enemies, the Ammonites. How low is that? You say, well, what should have been done? Well, Let me just plausibly put this out here at this point in the story. Rather than conspiring to murder Uriah, David could have sent a note to Joab and said, send Uriah home, I need to talk to him. And when Uriah got home, David could have fallen down on his knees in front of Uriah and said, Uriah, I've sinned against God and against you. Uriah, while you were away, I should have been out on the battlefield leading you, but I was in a dark moment in my life and I did something terrible. And Uriah, I've forcibly taken your wife while you were gone and I want to ask you to forgive me and I want to confess and I want to do whatever I can to make restitution And if he had done that, he would have minimized the consequences of his sin. Now, you can't take back what you've done. There would have still been a child. There would have still been a violation. There would have still been consequences. But there wouldn't have been conspiracy to commit murder. There wouldn't have been murder. There wouldn't have been cover-up. There wouldn't have been the 9,000 problems that spin out now because of a conspiracy and a cover-up. It could have been dealt with and mitigated in a different way. I'm just proposing that out there for future problems any of us might encounter, okay? The confession. He says, David, you're the man. Now, here's David. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned. You know, those three words right there are something that you probably need to get in the habit of talking to God about. It's probably even a good opportunity here this morning for all of us to fall down on our knees for a moment and say, maybe I haven't done that, but... I've done plenty more. I've done plenty of other things. God, I just want to on my face today and say to you, I'm not worthy of your love, but you've given it to me anyway. And God, I've sinned. And I'm sorry. And I repent. And I confess. And I want to find forgiveness. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan, the prophet, replied, The Lord sent me to tell you that he has taken away your sin and you will not die. You say, why is that in there? Well, because... The sentence for what David did under the Old Testament law is worthy of the death penalty. He's murdered someone, he's raped someone, he's taken someone. He's committed crimes that are worthy of the death penalty in the Old Testament. And Nathan the prophet says, listen, you repent. God's going to show mercy and he's not going to take your life. But here's what I need to say, and this really is the ending of the sermon coming up now. But there are still consequences to what we've done. Yeah, God's forgiven you, but now we have to let it play out. And you're going to have to deal with the consequences. The consequences of the rape, I mean, that's horrible, but that is one thing. But now we're dealing with murder and conspiracy and, gosh, you've got Joab involved. Other soldiers were killed when you pulled back the troops. It wasn't just Uriah that got killed. Other people died. It's turned into a whole other thing now that has spun completely out of control, even though we find forgiveness—I'm speaking you and I right now—even though we find forgiveness with God, we still have to find a way to live with the mess that we've made and find a way forward. And that always means confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness, and finding a way forward through a, a process of restoration to where we can be productive and healthy and, and at peace again. Let me deal with the consequences very quickly. My time's just now gone. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now therefore, this is still Nathan talking to the king. Here are the consequences. God's forgiven you. He's not going to kill you. You've asked for forgiveness. God's forgiven you. But you understand there's consequences now. By the way, what I'm saying to you needs to be a part of your parenting. You never want to create an environment where your kids can't come tell you the truth. That has to... That must be there. And your kids, if you're here, you need to be able to go to your parents and tell them the real lowdown on what's going on. And you need to know that your parents are going to love you no matter what. And they're going to fight for you no matter what. And they're going to care for you no matter what. But even though they forgive you and they love you and they care for you, you still may lose your car privileges for a while. Keys may be taken away. Okay? Curfews may be added. I mean, there may be consequences uh, because that's a necessary part of learning and growing and, and, and being healthy. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and you took the wife of Uriah to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I will bring calamity on you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. And I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. You say there's consequences, there are consequences. Let me just sum it up in Cliff Notes versions for you. Sin will always breed more sin and more heartache in our lives. There will always be more destruction than you anticipated there would be. And the fallout of David's rape and murder was a family filled with rape and murder. Those are the consequences that are being described. Let me me just cliff notes it for you. David has multiple wives. He has sons and daughters by the multiple wives, okay? One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, It happens now in his own family with his own kids. One son rapes a daughter, half-sister. Her full brother, Absalom, turns around and murders Amnon, his half-brother, for raping his sister. (laughs) Does that make sense? Now we've got bloodshed, murder, and rape in David's own family. Then Absalom turns his sights on his daddy and he attempts to overthrow his father in a bloody coup. And to make a point in front of all of Israel that he's going to be the next king and he's more powerful than his daddy, he runs his dad out of Jerusalem where his dad is cursed and people throw rocks at David on the way out. And Absalom goes up to the palace and in front of all of Israel takes one of David's concubines and sleeps with one of David's wives and sleeps with her in front of all of Israel saying, I'm the next king, see I control the harem. It all played out exactly as Nathan's judgment said it would. Then, one of David's mighty men executes Absalom in the, coup, in the coup. Now David loses another son. And then, as David lay dying, he calls his beloved wife Bathsheba in and they talk together for a while and Bathsheba says, go ahead and name Solomon our son as the next king. Because they're about to start fighting for the throne. You're on your deathbed, and there's going to be bloodshed. And Bathsheba secures, Absol- uh, secures Solomon's reign as the third king of Israel as David lay dying on his deathbed. Absalom, as one of his first official acts, goes out and kills his brother who's vying for the throne against him. Now, how would you like that to be your family story? Hey, how are your kids? Well, one raped the other and then the one murdered the other one and the other one murdered him and then they tried to steal everything me and my husband have and then one of our friends killed that son who tried to steal all of our stuff. And it, Wow, you talk about a story. You say, why? Because there's consequences to conspiracy and murder. That's all. What I want you to know is God forgave him, but what a mess. There was a better way to deal with sin than trying to cover it up. If you try to cover up your sin, you don't prosper, but whosoever confesses his sin, song uh, a book of Proverbs, whoever confesses his sin shall pros, uh, prosper and be forgiven. So you want to confess your sin and you want to repent and you want to make restitution if possible. Maybe this morning you've done something immoral or illegal. It's possible. I know in our congregation we have many victims. We have congregants whose family members have been murdered, assaulted, violated. This is the world in which we live. It's going to touch all of our lives eventually. What I want to say to you, cover up is not the path forward. Confession, forgiveness is the only path if you want to pursue Christ and pursue peace. If you're the victim of a sexual assault, You have to find a way forward as well. And I want to say to you, part of your way forward is you're going to have to find a way to forgive and live your life and not be captive to what someone else has done to you. You're going to have to find a way forward. If you've been injured by another party, you have to find a way to live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to let God Turn your story around. If you've suffered injustice, I want you to know there is hope for that in Jesus Christ. He can give you a renewed, fresh start on life where you can live again. Let me close with this. I simply, in my notes, I I don't know what it means to you, but my question when I got to the end of this is, so now what? What now? What, What do I do now? You know, often people will say to me, Pastor, if you knew what I had done in my past, you would know why I don't make disciples and why God would never use me as a spiritual leader. Seriously, folks, after these stories I've been telling you, God won't use you if you have something in your past? It seems to me from the Old Testament, it's the only kind of people God did use. What I want to say to you in the most loving terms as your pastor is you need to stop playing God. God. And you need to stop because you're not allowed to say what God can do or will do with your life. You may have come through a path of tragedy and heartache so that God could transform the lives of others through your life. You know, we talked a lot about this, Alan, in one of our elders meetings, that God lets us go through a lot of things and brings us through healthy on the other side so that we have a greater capacity to minister and love and care and encourage and comfort other people. If you've never seen anything in life, you don't have much perspective to help people. If you've been through some stuff, you really have quite a capacity to minister to others. Let me close by saying this. In my opinion, David's a rapist and a murderer. And his story holds me in very powerful tension. I hope you too. Because we are in tension between our sin and God's love for sinners. We're held in tension between we know what our failures are and yet we know God loves us and He has grace to forgive us. I'm held in tension because God loves David. I'm held in tension because I know David really does love God. But even those who love God deeply are capable of some horrible things. That holds me in tension as well. The story resonates because we love God and we know deep in our hearts that we are capable of some very bad things as well. So I need to tell you this morning that the most powerful thing in the universe is not your crime and not your sin and not guilt. The most powerful thing in this universe is God's love. And because of God's great love for you, there is cleansing and there is forgiveness with God. Bathsheba lost the baby, the baby, died shortly after birth. The child is in heaven with the Lord. And it brought David to a pivotal, low moment. He's been confronted by the prophet. They've lost the child. He has married Bathsheba. And what I want to say to you is, God forgave him. Bathsheba found a way forward to live her life and, and be happy. Don't forget that God's love is remarkable. God's capacity to forgive you of your sins is unfathomable. The Bible tells us in 1 John one nine, if we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I would ask you this morning which sins are not covered by the cross of Jesus Christ? Which sins cannot, can, can God not forgive it seems to me that the only sins that are not forgiven are those which are not confessed that if you're willing to come to god and say i'm sorry i really messed up here i've sinned against you and sinned against someone else and god i, I want to do the right thing and i want to confess it i want to ask for forgiveness and i want to go to my brother or sister and ask for forgiveness my my takeaway from these stories is you know who the real hero in all of this is seems to be jesus christ the one who takes all of our sins and puts it in his own body and nails it to the cross and says, I know all of the darkness and the depths of human darkness are deep, but I'll take all of your sin upon my own body and we'll nail it to the cross and I'll bear all of your sins in my body because there's nothing that you have done or could do that's not covered by the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Not a license to sin, or an excuse to sin. But when you sin, there is forgiveness there for you. Now that ought to do something for you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. Bathsheba's the victim. And at Cornerstone, we're going to always advocate for the victim. We'll not dismiss them. With God's grace, Bathsheba found a way forward, and I think her capacity to forgive is also legendary. She suffered so much trauma, and yet she married King David, and they bore children, and she became the queen mother, if you would, of Solomon. There is a way forward. That's all I want to say to you. There is a way forward, no matter what you've been through. And I'm praying this morning that you're Both your sins or the sins people have committed against you have not been as traumatic as what I've read to you this morning. These are incredibly extreme examples. But no doubt you've suffered at the hands of others. You have to find a way to forgive and move forward. You say, well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. Well, don't be held captive by them for Pete's sake. You move forward. You don't need to suffer anymore at the hands of those who've wronged you you just be at peace that God has the situation he will take care of it and you can move forward if you have sinned don't compound your sin bring your sin to the Lord and ask for forgiveness this morning don't let sin have the final word in your life let grace have the final word don't let shame be your story Let love and forgiveness be your story. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, and you want to pray and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior, if you've never done that, there are two deacons standing in the back of the room right now. I want you just to slip out of your seat and go take one of their hands and say, would you just pray with me? I I need... To find forgiveness, I need to accept Christ as my Savior. I've never done that. Would you pray with me? And one of those men and women will just pray with you right now. You have to have the courage to take that step. And we're praying that you will. I want to speak to the Christians for just a moment. When you receive Christ as your Savior, which most of you have done that very thing, you will sin after you receive Christ as your Savior. You're still fighting that old nature. You don't have to sin. The Holy Spirit can help you overcome that. But you will most likely sin after you receive Christ as your Savior. And I want to challenge every Christian in the room to reestablish the habit in your life of when you sin, don't let that sit for days and weeks or months or years. As quickly as the Holy Spirit says to you, you have sinned, you are the man. Get into the habit of confessing your sin, asking God for forgiveness, and asking the Holy Spirit to give you power not to repeat what you did wrong. Maybe the Holy Spirit's bringing something to your heart right now. Maybe right now, there's just some things popping up and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I need to repent of this. You just make an altar out of your chair right there and just say, Lord, right here where I sit. Some things I need to come clean about. I need to find forgiveness. I need to find healing. I need to find a way forward. And I've learned this morning that confession and repentance is the way forward. So God, I confess and you fill in the blanks right there. ask for your forgiveness and your cleansing. And I thank you for your love and your compassion. Father, thank you for challenging us this morning with a difficult subject giving us maybe some fresh perspective, helping us understand where your heart is and where your mind is. God, I I pray that you would, first of all, just wrap your arms of protection around this congregation and our sons and daughters and our moms and dads. And Lord, as you taught us to pray, deliver us from evil and just keep the evil one away from us out of our lives and out of our homes and out of our schools and out of our neighborhoods and out of our church and out of our lives. And God, guide us with your protection and empower us with your spirit, Lord, that we could not fall off into evil this way. God, I want to pray for just a moment for everyone who suffered some sort of violence and injustice, Lord, that you would help them to find healing. I know that every member of this church is lifting them right now in my prayer that they would find healing and peace and a way forward to live their life god we stand with the victims and our hearts go out to them lord may you wrap your arms around them and give them healing to move forward God, where there's a victim there has to be then a perpetrator of a crime and that's also here this morning represented by our lives. God, forgive us where we have hurt others, where we have sinned against you. God, help us to do the right thing. God, we honor you this morning for your incredible ability to forgive us and love us. Message like this really makes us look in the mirror and understand our unworthiness and yet somehow by miracle of grace you have imputed your righteousness and made us worthy God it blows our minds that you could love sinners so much that you could make them clean and pure and righteous and stand as your children and your covenant people God we give you thanks for what you've done we honor you this morning we pray your blessings upon your people Let's stand together our benediction this morning from the book of Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord protect you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and may He be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and may the Lord give you peace. God bless you. You're dismissed.